This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hello and welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Emmy Birch, and today we're talking to my friend, Akram Shalabi. We talk today specifically about shifting perspectives and the power of resilience. Really the perfect episode as we wrap up this year and look ahead for our goals and our ambitions and our dreams for 2023. What I love about this conversation is how Akram shares his personal story, including all of the disappointments and how his shift in perspectives allowed for successes that were even bigger than he could have imagined. Now, yes, as with a lot of my episodes, this does have a little bit of a running spin because y'all, that's my thing. And whatever your thing is, I hope that you are so proud of it. In this episode, Akram talks about pacing and how running marathons gives him freedom and opportunities to really explore inclusion, diversity, and accessibility. Y'all, there's so many great quotes in this one. I can't wait to hear what you learn. As always, these episodes wouldn't be possible without you listening. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for supporting the Illuminate podcast. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Akram Shalabi. Today on the Illuminate podcast, we are talking to my friend, Akram Shalabi. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm so excited to be having this conversation so the listeners of Illuminate can hear your awesome story. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You have to tell the listeners who you are, but I want to tell them first how we met. So Chicago Marathon, we're on the PACE team and everybody works a part of the expo. Now, before you turn off this podcast, because it's about running, don't worry. There are lots of relatable things here. You just have to find your thing. Ours happens to be running. But Akram and I met at the PACE tent, PACE team booth at the expo. And we were fast friends directing traffic as people were <laughs> getting in line, queuing up, as you would say. Tell the listeners who you are, my friend. All right, my name's Akram. I am the PACE team coordinator for London Marathon. Um, I tend to wear many hats. Um, I also am the PACE team coordinator for Beirut Marathon. And I'm also a solicitor, which is a lawyer in, for my, in, my, in real life and for my day job. And where do you live? I live in London, UK, which is currently very, very cold with a bit of snow. You have snow? We do. That's so awesome. You really do get like white holidays. We get white holidays. We don't tend to get a white Christmas. But um, oh. yeah, there's a bit of snow outside the window at the moment. It's going to turn into ice later tonight. Hope maybe we'll get replenished, but we'll see how it goes. It is nice and warm <laughs> where I am. I am not tempted to leave the room. I get that completely. Okay, so you have all these different hats that you wear. We met running. How did you get into running? Have you always been a runner? No. So, so, so the theme, the theme, the theme of of my running story really is it, it's almost accidental that I fell into running. Um, I've always been sporty, um, whether that's school, university, etc. Um, and in 2014, I um, injured my back doing a simple power squat with no weights. I was trying to get my beach body 
using a home video recipe kind of videos you know, before the before the uh, advent of uh, of you know online classes used to buy those videos and then use them and dvds etc and one day i was doing a power squat and my back went um my disc slipped and compressed my nerve um a back procedure later i was told that your days of competitive sport are over i used to play it used to play football to, to a very good level um which is soccer for you across the pond um but if your back goes as most people would know your mobility gets affected and where I played is you had twist and turn a lot, et cetera. Um, so I took that to heart and I spent the good part of eight months not doing any sports at all. Because I thought if I can't do one sport that I love to do, I won't do anything. Um, mm. One day coming home from work, I got in and had an epiphany. Well, I, realized, I didn't realize it was an epiphany at the time. Was I went and got my old square iPod shuffle. It was iPod shuffles that were just square with no screens. Little teeny tiny, you never knew what you were going to get. Exactly. Um, put it on, put on my cross trainers, and went for a run. And I felt absolutely ecstatic. Uh, my back felt great. It was a little sore pain, but it felt great. Um, and from that day, I ran almost every day for six months, 10K every day. Uh, whether it's in the morning, in the evening, whatever, I'd squeeze it in because. For the first time in a long time, I felt happy and I felt, you know, I could turn what had happened to me into something positive. Now, lo and behold, I have a friend who'd already run the London Marathon before, who was off to Berlin in September 2015. And he was running for a charity called Sense, which supports uh, people who are deaf and blind. Um, and he, they have a they had a dropout just before the latest cutoff to register for the event, which is August. And he called up and said, they're asking around for anybody who wants to take a place. Do you want to take it? Absolutely. I like it. I like it. I like an adventure. Didn't know what I was doing, didn't know what I was signing up to. I just thought marathon, Berlin, let's just do it. Raised the money. Went to Berlin. Um, and I was so excited. There was an expo. There were shops. I bought almost everything I could. I bought the starter T-shirt, the finisher T-shirt, the hats, everything, because I was so excited. Um, and then I ran it the next day. I started running with him. Um, tried to be clever with some Bluetooth headphones that I bought for my phone. That didn't work. I died very quickly. So my trusted iPod shuffle came out again. Um, after 5K, I looked at my friend and said, I feel good. I'm going to go. And I went for it. Now, when I say I went for it, I just ran as I felt. And I was really excited. Berlin was full of people, one of the majors, although I didn't know what that meant at the time. And stopped and played drums with people playing drums or high five people or even stopped for a massage at 25 kilometers. So Berlin had massages at 25, 30, and 35 kilometers. Um, university students tend to, be, tend to do it. And I finished it in three hours and 10 minutes and a few seconds. Now, Hold on. That, that's very fast, friends that are listening. That's 26.2 miles in three hours and 10 minutes. So just about seven minute miles-ish. Right? I, I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't even have a watch on, <laughs> like a proper okay. watch on or pace watch. Just I just ran. However it felt. Okay. Now, I thought this is great. Didn't know what it meant. Just was great. Um, wore my medal everywhere I went. 
you know, it, it was fantastic. And then about a month later, I was on my way to a wedding to Libya, where I'm originally from. And it was by Tunisia. I stopped there for the weekend and on transit. And they had a marathon on. I thought, this is great. I'm going to sign up. Had my trusted basic running trainers by now. Not crush trainers, running trainers by now. Had a stopwatch. Not even a pacing watch, a stopwatch, which I still have. I, the, the truth behind that stopwatch is I went to buy a running watch didn't know what I was doing and thought, let me just buy a watch that looks like a running watch. And it was your basic stopwatch. <laughs> with that looked a bit small. Ready, set, go. And it, exactly. <laughs> the re- let's call it the ready, set, go watch, right? <laughs> and I ran that race. And I remember I had a flight to catch a few hours later, but I can't mess around. I've got to run as quick as possible. And I ran the second half. I think it was rather 119, I think it was one hour, 19 minutes, the second half on the way back. Amazing. And I finished 11th in two hours, 53 minutes and 11 seconds. I thought, wow. Whatever, just a sub no, 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 massive no, no. sub three. No, no. But I, didn't even know, I didn't even know what that meant. I thought, this is great. I just shaved off 17 minutes of my time. Next marathon, another 17 minutes. What does it even mean? Right. That that was my actual time. I was fearless about what these things meant. Right. I didn't even know, even though it was a BQ time, I didn't even know that I was 11 seconds off on New, New York qualifying time. I didn't know. But by then I thought, okay, this marathon thing's great. Let me see when the next one I can do. And it was Istanbul three weeks later. Now, because I'd finished 11 and then 253, it'd given me an elite start, which isn't the elite treatment. It was more like the elites are there. You can start just behind them in front of Corral Wave A. Great. Ran that race. Um, now, there is a picture that exists, and I'll send it to you. I think I've already sent it to you, where I'm running with these elites. They're dressed in elite gear, like minimal gear, and know what they're doing. I'm literally covered head to toe with a bandana on my head or a headband on my head and music and a T-shirt with a vest on top and tights with shorts um, running with them. And I think I ran with the leading lady till about 15 kilometers um, and ended up finishing that race. I think I finished 50th in two hours, 59 minutes and 56 seconds. Having stopped because I stubbed my toe as well. I could do something about my toe. Um, but something in me was like, three hours is something you want to break now. Didn't even know what it meant. And did it. Those were my first few races. By then, I was like, okay, this is something decent. You get to travel the world. You get to run. You can eat what you want. You meet people. So my, my fourth race was in Grand Canary in January 2016. And I ran, that was hot, but I ran that in three hours and seven minutes. Finished, I think, 38. And that's when I realized, okay, and people are talking to me, um, you know, explaining how this marathon running works and what these times meant. Okay, I'm onto something. Now, lo and behold, when you become become more educated about something, two things tend to happen. You either don't care and continue running as you do, or like most of us do, and understand it a little bit more, but then there's the enormity of the challenge that you have done or the obstacles you've gotten over. And that tends to then almost hold you back. Because no and behold, as soon as I understood what these things meant, 
my time slowed down because I'd start running. Oh, you're going a bit too quick for that pace. Are you going to, are you, are, are you going to maintain it the whole way? That your inner voice starts whispering to you and telling you, slow down, slow down. That freedom of just run as fast as you can for as long as you can is gone. So for a long while, I was just running with targets, but conservative targets, and my times tend to slow down a bit. So it was 3.14 here, 3.20 something here. So it's relatively slower to other people. Um, I appreciate now that that's, those are still good times. But in my head, it was, why can't you do the 2.53 anymore? What was going on? Now, fast, and that's still running with a back injury. That's still running. I was going to say, how was your back feeling through all this? Um, it- I run in pain, but it was manageable. It wasn't. It I was wasn't, better for your mental health or something? Like, why did you choose to run in pain? It was better for my mental health, at least run in pain, than not do anything because of the pain. Okay. And, you know, like I've got plantar fasciitis in both feet. I don't think you can make your plantar worse by running. It's just painful. So I run with plantar, right? Um, um, but then you start getting the right shoes, et cetera, to make it a bit easier and the symptoms get a bit smaller, a bit lower. Then fast forward to um, September 2016, where I just finished my legal training, and we'll, we can talk about that a bit later on. And I had the three month gap between my finishing my training and starting my job. And I decided I've, always, I've got a place in Chicago because I'd qualified through one of the times I've done. I've also got a place in New York. I'm going to go to the US for the very first time in September 2016, see it for the first time. And be there in election season because it's I always always in told it's great. Now you're laughing because as a local, it gets bombarded by all the mail and all the adverts. It's probably tiresome. Well, for an outsider, this is great. The debates, people take it really seriously. The newspapers, the signs. I mean, the best marathons I've ran in that I feel I ran in in the US is in election season because of all the signs of fans put up. Um, That's valid. It is, it is it is fantastic. It is, it is hilarious. And it, and it's just really funny, right? Everything becomes really topical. So anyway, I get to the US and I'm about marathon number 16. I think I ended up in Columbus, Ohio. And this is my favorite ever marathon. It is run by the Nationwide Children's Hospital. And then my little spy tells me they were born around that place as well, I think. Is that right? I was born, yeah, I was born in Columbus. Yes. They have uh, a really awesome neonatal hospital. Good to know. They've also got a great nationwide children's hospital as well, which which um, I'm not sure if they sponsor the marathon, but it's named after them. And basically, I was there driving through, and on the Saturday, I realized the marathon was on because the roads were closed and signed up, which was great. Now, what I didn't realize is how much this the marathon was geared around the hospital and the children. Uh, this hospital, as I understand it, are, is for children who are terminally ill or lifetimes challenged. But the, what the neat thing about this is, if there's anything neat about this kind of situation, is every mile is named after a child champion, which is a, a patient of the hospital. And at least in 2016, I can't vouch for any other years, at least in 2016, I understood where the child was able that child was there with their whole team in the morning of the race. I saw a few of those children. And what always stays with me is they were handing out wristbands of 
the disease they suffered of or a charity that supported that disease and you collected them as a runner. And um, I was in tears and I didn't want that race to end. And I remember finishing it. The motto of the marathon every year is, some, is, is, is a word that inspires people. So for 2016, it's called motivated. That's across the T-shirt. They give you a wristband that says motivated. And I was motivated by just by running that race. I was motivated not just to do more philanthropically, but also to actually run more and experience more of these experiences because they make me a better person. And they shifted my perspective of what running is about. So running to most people, I think, even when I started, was a way to get fit, to raise money for charity, see the world. But what I also realized is how much I can make a difference when I go and run to that local community, just being there running. It's not about money, it's just just being there. Can imagine that child getting high-fived by random strangers those high fives will stay with that child for life. You know, whether I was wearing mm-hmm. a costume or just saying hello or oh, hello, I'm from London, that experience will always stay with that child. So that inspired me to continue to see new places in the US, but also to actually run other places. I ended up in San Antonio, Texas, which is one of my favorite cities in the US. Because um, it's just a, it's just a mixture of so many things, um, and it doesn't it, know where San Antonio, Texas is. It is in Texas, obviously. But look at the film called The Alamo. That will tell you mm-hmm. everything you need to know about what that town's about. I ended up in Hawaii as well, as far as Hawaii, running there as well um, that year. But what I would take back from that trip mainly is the Columbus, Ohio Marathon. But also, it was the birthplace of my first pacing gig. Was last Wait, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Go so on. you started running just for your mental health. Yes. After you had lost your connection to fitness because of a back injury. So you randomly discovered marathoning. So you're like, I like running. I might as well do a marathon. Ran, 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 started to learn more about marathons. And we're, we're talking like not even two years after you picked up your first, you know, 10K on the river, did we start doing them all the time in the U.S.? And then pacing, but how did you... How did you know it existed? Like, tell how what, I need to know what happened next. So, Columbus, Ohio. Let's go back to Columbus, Ohio. As we got to Ohio State, I was running with a pacer. I didn't know what a pacer was. This guy with a stick, great, right? I'd seen pacers before in Europe in a few races. They had flags, but I didn't really appreciate what they did, right? This guy called Nicholas Hansen, who's now a Facebook friend of mine, um, he was pacing a 3.35. And as we got to Ohio State University, and then for people who've been to Ohio State University, there's a nice little parky area where you run on the top and you little roundabout and you run, run underneath where you were before. For those who've been there know what that means, but other ones, don't worry about it. It's Ohio State, it's a park. And he went to the toilet, the lavatory, whatever else you want to call it. And, or the washroom, or whatever you want to call it. And he gave me his pacing stick to hold while he went to the toilet. He's like, you keep going at this pace, I'll catch up. Now, I didn't have, at, at that point, I had a pacing watch. I could just about use it. I am running with this pacing stick. Everyone's like, go on, champ. You're amazing. You are awesome. And I kept looking around. Who are you speaking to? They're talking to me. I'm holding the stick. Stick. The power of the stick. The, the <laughs> stick of power. And I'm running with it. I'm like, this pacing thing is great. I'm running. Nicholas shows up about, Five minutes later, can I have the stick back? I'm like, no, I want to keep it. 
can I keep can I please keep holding it for a little bit? He's like, fine. So I'm running with his pacing stick. Taking all the kudos while he's basically back pa- pacing in the back seat, essentially pacing the whole thing, driving the whole bus. So I saw Nicholas again in DC two weeks later in the Marine Corps Marathon. He ran the 315. I ran the first half with him. Then I just slowed down. I I had New York the next week, and remember I told you those gremlins of why you're running so quickly. You've got so much things going on. So many runs. It's I listen. Yeah, right. Oh, that trip had about eight marathons in it in three months. But the week after that... (laughs) That's not normal, people. So, anyway, the week after the election was the last... The week after the election was the Las Vegas Marathon. Rock and roll Las Vegas Marathon. I'm not sure they do the full marathon anymore, but at the time they did. And the pace team was run by a guy called Tim Kelly, who um, runs the Las Vegas uh, running company. Now, I didn't know that until I went to the pacing booth in the expo and said, Hi, can I please have these X, Y, and Z pacing bands to wear? Because I want to do these times. And then in my head, I was asked, Do you have any pacing spots left? I didn't know how they recruit pacers or whatever. And he just looks at me and goes, What time did you run last week? I ran 323 in New York. What did you run the week before? Because I told him I'd run a couple of races. Marine Corps, three, three hour, 30 minutes. Okay, I have two spots in 325 because a couple who were together, who were going to pace together, broke up. And neither of them wanted to come. Now, I'm not sure if either of them were still speaking. This, this is why I keep thinking that. And it's almost like a game of chicken. I'm not going to go because I think he's coming. Or I'm not going to go because I think she's coming. And they both just cancelled on the poor guy. <laughs> I think that's what happened. Um, because, you know, I, I would always think that if the one, the one of them would have wanted to go if they knew the other one wasn't going, right? Mm-hmm. So he had two 325 spots and just looked at me and went, here's a 325 stick. And that's all he said. He's like, good luck, running even pace. In my head, whatever that meant. I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> just running even pace, you know, be vocal, lead your group. You paid for your entry. Let's go get you a refund for your entry, which was nice of him. I didn't ask for that. Gave me a new refund of entry. Gave me a little vest. He's like, I'll see you tomorrow at the finish line. Now, unbeknown to me, until the end, he had thought in his head, he thought I'd never make it. He told me afterwards, right? So I went above my business. I think there was a Britney Spears concert I went to that night. It was fantastic. Um, because the race was the following night, right? It was in the evening on the strip. Right. It was in the morning. So I had my Las Vegas experience to the max. And then the next more next day we had a Snoop Dogg concert just before the race, because Las Vegas put on a race, a, a concert before the race. And I went to Pace. Now I finished in 324 one a few seconds, and Tim was waiting at the finish high-fived me, and then whispered to me and said, I didn't think you were going to make it. Well done. Now, and then he wrote to me afterwards, he had a nice little laugh about it. Now, what I did appreciate from him, and again, this this, this was his perspective and how he shifted my own in terms of pacing, and with a lot of things in life, actually. He said to me, what, what I realized was, had he told me or showed any doubt in my ability to do this on the day before, I probably would have carried that doubt with me. It was something I've never done before. 
and would have started having those same gremlins of what because you, you appreciate the gravity of what you're doing, right? But right. he instilled the confidence in me to just run freely again. You know how I told you I ran freely at the beginning and then those things changes things when you try mm-hmm. to put pressure on yourself. He basically instilled the confidence by saying go without telling me his own doubts. And I perform. And I, I keep thinking, had he told me about any of his doubts in any way, my perspective on, the, on, on my job would have changed to think, he's a guy who knows what he's doing and he's doubting me. He must be right. Rather mm-hmm. than the other way around, of all he did was say go, kept his doubts to himself and allowed me to just flourish and do what I had to do. So that's mm-hmm. my first pacing adventure. From, Did you hit the time? Yeah, yeah, three twenty-four and a bit of change. Amazing. It was okay. It was okay. Um, it was, but pacing Las Vegas was interesting because it was dark most of the places. It was interesting to do so. Um, you know, it was. I'd never ran a, a race at night before, let alone pace a race at night before. It was great. It was a great experience. So he didn't tell you that he didn't think, which really shifted your perspective. Of now, did you know you were going to go back home and ask to pace? Like, what was your plan after that? And wait, what were you doing for a job at this point? How were you able to suddenly be in America for months and run? So, all so as I, I, I said, I was in between. I was in between jobs. So I just finished my legal training, and then I, and then I, um, in January, was starting a new job. So I had three months gap in between, and that's I said, I'm going to the US for the first time. Okay, so tell us a little bit about this legal training thing, because you, in 2016, was when you went to the States. Yes. So how did you get into the legal training? Because I also know you, we talked about this at the expo, you published a big, huge journal article in 2016, but it was about what, like ovarian cancer or breast cancer or something? Maths. That has Maths nothing to do with to law. that. Yeah, so, so dial back, I am... Um, I went to university in the UK in 2005. Um, I studied mathematics or maths, as you guys would call it, for three years. I then did a one-year law degree in 2008. Then I did a master's in maths at Cambridge in 2009-10. Then I did my legal training course, which is a one-year course, 10-11. Now, in between all that, there was a financial crash. Um, there was legal jobs that required you to train for two years, but they recruited you two years in advance. So every time you wanted to get a job, you had to join that cycle of 2008 to start in 2010, 2009 to start in 2011, et cetera, et cetera. So those training contracts were like gold dust. You can imagine how many people were applying for them. And it's a luck of the draw, you interview, et cetera. So I finally, a firm took pity on me in 2011 and gave me a job in 2013. By then, I'd finished all my education that I needed to start training as a lawyer. So by way of example, if I'd studied history or mathematics and then got the job to start two years later, in those two years, I would have gone to done my law degree in one year or diploma and did the, the legal practice course and then been ready to start working. I'd already mm-hmm. done all that. So I had a two-year gap. And I thought, rather than just do any job, et cetera, or travel, whichever, I thought, not that any of those things are bad to do. I just didn't, wasn't interested at the time. 
I went to my professor who taught me at maths at King's College when I was an undergraduate and said, can I do some research with you? He said, great, okay. But do it properly. You probably have to do it for three years, not two, because it takes time to do these things. Um, so I did research for three years at King's College London from 2011, 2014 in mathematics applied to breast and ovarian cancer. So I, ta- I tailored a program which could be used to for those things and other things as well. And then started my legal training in the tail in the 2014 and finished in 2016. And then the same year I finished my legal training, I published a paper in a journal called Statistical Methods in Medical Research. And my supervisor was humble enough to allow me to be lead author. He said, you've written it, you've done work. Um, so that is that is where that conversation came from that we had in Chicago. Okay. You did all this in 2016. Let me just recap that you did all this in 2016. You published a journal article in Applied Mathematics in a fancy journal. You paced your first marathon after doing your first trip to the United States and running eight marathons in three months. And you started a new career after already having this little mini career in mathematics. After we we have to have so have to acknowledge the fact that you had quite a few bumps along the way. Like your times were getting quote unquote, we're using big air quotes, quote unquote slower in the marathon coming and going, but you also weren't getting these law placements. How did you overcome those, those disappointments along the way? So I think, I think in with hindsight, I think a number of things come into this is your upbringing teach and your experiences as a child um, teach you a number of things, but resilient, but also perspective. But as a child, you don't see the perspective. You only see that as an adult. Um, I obviously had my parents as my role models and the things they faced. And as children, they tried to hide from us and teach us that the world is linear when it's really like a zigzag journey. Um, and they shield the zigzag and completely tell us that it's completely linear. So I had that there. I'd also faced a lot as a, as a, as a young as a young adult or 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 as 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 I got older. So, for example, I schooled in Libya for most of my elementary career, uh, elementary school career, and junior high school in an international school slash American school that we had in in Libya in Tripoli, Libya at the time. And then I moved back to the UK alone, living with. A, a, a host family who um and i started school at september the 12th 2001 so a day after 9 11 so if you can so you can imagine i went to an old boys school in a place called south end in essex just uh, just a little bit out of london about an hour drive out of london. now you can imagine the reception i'd have um, of a 14-year-old who was quite accomplished in his old school in, and, and had a social life, etc., and quite outgoing, coming to this school, which is very different, different culture. So I, I was—I didn't keep myself to myself. I was, I was the same loud, you know, outgoing person with a name I'm like mine a day after 9-11. So, and boys aren't nice, especially 13-year-old <laughs> boys. So, well, well, um, no offense to any 14-year-old boys. So let me summarize that experience in, in five things that happened in those two years I was there. I had a fight almost every day at school because people would tell me things like, go back to your country 
or just 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 as a spoken password, go back to your country, you don't belong here. Or they'd call me names such as Akram bin Laden or whatever. I mean, they're 14. They're, they're, you know, even the kids got involved, the 13-year-olds, the year, like the, the little years, like 13, 12, 11 got involved, got involved in it as well. And 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 I get I get it, they were all scared at the time. It was a scary time in the world, but it's not my fault, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I stood up for myself. I got beaten more than I beat anybody. Believe it. I got beaten more. But, you know, I, I tried to stand up for myself. I still played sports and got recognized for that. They gave, they gave you school colors, little badges you've got on your uniform. I was, we have something called prefects in the UK in year 10 and 11, where you are recognized for your contribution to the school. And they make you give you a little bit of authority like for, you know, lunchtime dinner queues and all that kind of stuff or lunch queues etc and events and you know whenever they had evening events you are there you know marshalling the queues and re- receiving uh, people who are coming etc so it was a distinguished stuff. they gave me a special tie and things like that we had we had our own little common room as prefects i was made the prefect six months of joining from joining school oh well that's Des- fast despite all those difficulties right um okay. And the reason I'm mentioning all this is because I could have easily have capitulated, gone back home, and been like, this is not for me, or allowed it, or gone with the flow. And as I saw a few people actually do, they started to turn on people to fit in. So, for example, there were a few kids from the, not the same uh, communities I was from, but similar ones, who would be the instigators against me. Yeah. But, yeah, and 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 as a fourteen-year-old, how do you deal with these things? And I just thought the best way to deal with it, as I did now as an adult, was I turned to sport. I turned to football, athletics, table tennis, and cross country. Those are four sports from school that I could do. And I, because I found that's where I found peace. That's where also I found I could belong somewhere, because there was a kid, and I won't name his name, who was one of the most vocal advocates of go back to your country Akram but on the football team when we were together and we were winning he was my teammate he couldn't care less mm. he was high-fiving we celebrate goals together and then the next day he just turned like Jack on high and that was a big learning curve for me as, as a kid 14 of trying to understand people at the same time not just shifting your perspective but also how to understand people and to understand that one day they could be your friend here, but in a different scenario, they can't be, which is the way of the world, I guess. But mm-hmm. as a 14 year old, it's difficult to understand when you think everything's linear. It's a meritocracy, it's linear, everything's great, you're going to make it. You know, people will get to know you before they judge you, that kind of scenario. Now, that from there, I just went off, off, off onto university and 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 got to where I've got to now um, with my uh, with my work. But I think the lesson from that for me is it gave me perspective at a very young age of the world isn't just a meritocracy; it is about people management, understanding their perspectives, and learning to navigate that the best way you can. And mm. understanding where your safe space is. And for me, it was sport. So when that was taken away from me in 2014, or I felt it was taken away from 2014, that almost crushed me 
And I was thankful that I then found running. It makes sense how it all ties together. So as you've experienced the, you found belonging in sport and you unfortunately had to experience what it felt to not be included and to have diversity work against you. How are you using those life experiences in all the hats that you wear? So uh, one person I will name in this is my former head of year um, at, at the school. Um, Simon Nix, who I remember when I was having these difficulties, he was also the football team manager as well as the PE teacher. Um, and all head of one head of my year at some point, he turned around to me once, and we had the conversation on the way back from a football game on a Saturday. And he said, "It's much easier to have conversations now outside of school." And he said, "Listen, I get it. My wife's Northern Irish. I get what you're going through." But he said. If you continue to react the way you're reacting, you're just giving them what they want, A. But B, you are justifying the system. Because if your reaction tells them that they do, what they're doing is right, you have to, he said, unfortunately, win them over and convince them that what they are doing is wrong to you and to others, but in a way that you can relate to them. So. I found sport to do that, football on the same team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, how I'm translating that in my everyday life is, you know, we all, we all have blind spots. Let's, let's be really honest with each other. We're all, we all have blind spots to a lot of things. So it's nice. I try and surround myself with people from everywhere as my friends, acquaintances, colleagues, et cetera, because they keep your blind spots in check, right? Mm-hmm. But and I, that's at work, that's uh, in my social life, etc., and in my personal life. But what I also have done, so my work with London Marathon is I'm the pacing coordinator. Um, London does an incredible job in terms of promoting inclusivity and diversity in running in the community and in everyday life. So when I was brought on as pacing coordinator, part of my job was to also make the PACE team more diverse and inclusive and represent the communities connected with the marathon. That doesn't just mean in London. It just means it's it's an international marathon. So therefore, it's an international community, right? Mm -hmm. Now, but also having the lessons that I've learned, it isn't a simple of, right, whoever was there before, get rid of them or move them out and bring new people in. Because I remember that experience as a child. It's, it's not their fault. Whatever system it existed before, and, and this, this is a problem a lot of places have, a lot of pace teams have, is a system that works is great. But is it working to the maximum capability can work? And is it actually achieving what the organization or what the team wants to achieve? So my attitude to this was inclusivity means inclusivity of everybody, not just those who are there now. It's not, it's not just the haves, the have-nots who need to be included. It's also the haves that need to be included because that's true inclusivity in my view. So what I did was essentially devised a, 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 a process where if you are a returning pacer, meaning a pacer that was there beforehand, 
you have almost a one in two chance of coming back because deliberately you apply, you have an application process, not just word of mouth anymore or who you knew. And you are you are the criteria is the criteria, but that's your pool. So if you are 70, we're going to take roughly 35. You have a one in two chance. And then the rest of the cases in the team are, quite, are left for new paces, which means paces who are not part of the previous team of the year before. They could have been part of the year before that. You become new then. You're just not part of the previous edition. New paces from all around the world. And also something that's close to my heart is first-time paces. Paces who have never paced a marathon before. Now, they've all run a marathon before or are accomplished runners at a distance. So, for example, if you are an, a, a semi-elite half marathoner, you can pace a marathon, right, with the right guidance. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have run a marathon, but most of them would have anyway. And because I also realized that less represented communities tend to have less paces. And this is just a natural, unfortunately, a natural consequence of various things that go on in the world, in the economy, demographics, uh, regions, etc., where people from certain communities tend to have more opportunities to travel, to pace, etc., while mm -hmm. from less represented communities, they don't have those same opportunities. So first-time pace has also allowed those communities to start to be represented. And generally, first-time paces on the whole came from the UK. So, so, so it was they were local, and they were provided with guidance of from from day one essentially how to pace, how to manage your race. There would have been a half marathon for them to practice mm -hmm. a month before, which we did, and then they paced the marathon successfully. Now, when I say successfully, if anybody had an injury, whichever, and didn't come in on pace. To me, that's successful in your participation as a runner and as a pacer, but you were not successful in meeting your target. You have to be very careful in my mind with these things because at the end of the day, you and I know this. We pace, we run. We feel the responsibility and, and, uh, and, and, and we feel if we ever don't meet pace, we're letting people down. So you have to be careful in terms of how you manage that responsibility for people. So, for example, with London, I was very careful. And uh, I used the American model. And then, have you ever watched um, Friday Night Lights? Mm -hmm. I the, love the that series, movie. the series, not the movie, the series as well. Oh, I've only ever seen the movie. Right. You should watch the series. Okay. Um, so, I've watched that series. And, and in, in a previous life, I also coached kids soccer or football in the UK. And in the UK, they have this model usually of changing every year coaches for different age groups. In the club I was at, I refused to do that. I said, I'm with these guys from under sevens or under eights. I want to take them all the way to under 13s. The same team, because I want to develop them year on year on year. And that worked. We won the League and Cup double one year, which is great. Um, but I realized the camaraderie and the community that built I wanted to bring that to the pace team. So I built that in the pace team. I made it as informal as we, I was a, as approachable as time allowed. My phone was always there if somebody wanted to call or text, et cetera. It wasn't just an email, you're in, and I'll see you at the expo. We had Zoom calls. 
we had you know interactions if i saw them at a race before i'd i'd i'd, I'd seek them out if i knew they were there we'd have a coffee i tried to have lunch with them you know because they're part of they're part of our team and i think part of that led to a hundred percent finish rate this year we had a hundred percent of our marathon of our paces finish because they were told as long as if you if you have any difficulties um and you need to stop please stop I never encouraged anybody to run while injured, etc. But I was pleased to see when all of them finished by a much slower rate, and there were only 9% who did not meet pace. We had a 91% record for, Which for is year incredible one. for first-time pacers. That's absolutely No, amazing. no, sorry, sorry, 91% for everybody, sorry, of the team. Of the oh, first, on the whole team? On the whole team, 91%. 100% finish. Of first-time pacers, memory, if my memory says it correctly, I think 7 out of 10. Pace. The rest really has had injuries. That's still really yeah. good for first time pace. And I and I'm pleased to see that. Um, the point I the point I'm making is, it's also about shifting perspectives, right? Because what I try and instill with them is your first your, your perspective is very simple. You pace. You're doing a job. You have a responsibility. You're serving other runners. You're providing a feel good factor, and you want to finish on pace. Once that becomes impossible for whatever reason, you shift your perspective or they shifted their perspective to finishing and finishing in a safe manner because they didn't want to let the team down as a whole. Not that I told them to do that. That is a byproduct of what we, the community we'd, we'd set up. Now, I think from that, the lesson that I've learned is you have if you plan things right and instill things right and instill the same level or if you impart the perspectives that you have on certain situations to other people they will pick them up without you even telling them i never would never ask someone to finish if they can't but they themselves will make that judgment call for them right for themselves and they made the judgment call and finished safely Mm-hmm. Um, and in my view, they would have all learned from that experience themselves and got perspective of, right, if I didn't make my pace time this year, was it because, like, I deliberately didn't give them a race report afterwards on what I think they should have, shouldn't have done, because I wanted them to go and learn themselves. Was it because mm-hmm. I arrived on the Saturday and I was a bit jet-lagged and it was running show and the expo and all these things and I was knackered on the Sunday? Or was it because the time I went for was a bit too ambitious? London is a big marathon, which is blessed with spectators from start to finish. And as of runners, you need to prepare for that, right? Mm-hmm. You need to prepare for some, you know, weaving and the mental, having the mental capacity to deal with all that. Um, mm-hmm. Or was it just simply I had a bad day at the office and, you know, but at least I finished. And what can mm-hmm. I learn from that? So those are some of the lessons that come from doing these things. You created a place of belonging for these first-time pacers within the bigger piece of the picture. And it's so cool to see how you've taken adversities over life, whether that was not getting a placement in a law firm right away or not exactly knowing what you were doing running, but doing it anyway, overcoming the back adversity and figuring out how to channel those experiences to create a place where today people can find 
a community that they belong and that they're included and they're given an opportunity no matter if they have or have not. That's it's really interesting to see. And I love illuminating stories like these. So thank you for sharing yours. <laughs> uh, thank you. And, and, and I think generally speaking, I think the biggest tool someone can use to hurt somebody is exclusion. Mm. And that is, that is something that I actively try to stop where I see it and I am able because I know what it's like to be excluded, let alone be excluded for things that are not my fault, right? That I mm. can't do anything about. And the fact I try and engage you to, to, to explain that to you, I'm already on the back foot. You know, how can I explain to you that just because I share a religion with some bad actors, that I am not a bad actor? Not that I even mm -hmm. share the same religion. I could share the same interpretation or way of practicing of the same religion, but I'm a completely different person to those bad actors. How can I explain that to you? And the fact that I start having that conversation is validating your point of view because it may be wrong, but you arrived at it and I'm engaging mm -hmm. it. So you end up in a spiral. Mm -hmm. Spiral, right? Um, and I think I ended up in that spiral for various things in 2019 where I had a mental breakdown because I had suffered relatively recently in that time from exclusion in various things. And I kept thinking it was my fault. I said, I must have done something wrong. And I'm trying to rack my brains. What have you done? You know, and you start second guessing yourself. And over the months that erodes you, erodes your confidence and erodes your mental well-being, but I ended up having a mental breakdown in September 2019. And I wasn't enjoying anything. I wasn't enjoying running. I wasn't enjoying life. And I got to a point where I had to see a therapist. And when I went to see a therapist, he introduced something to me called the drama triangle. Now, I'll get to drama triangle in a minute, but I stopped, I stopped running um, for six months. And I promised myself if I went to therapy, and believe it or not, like, like a lot of people in this world, you don't really appreciate therapy until you've done it. You, you tend to, in my view, you tend to think, a lot of people tend to think less of it or rather think it's actually necessary in one form or another for everybody in this world. If I did it for three months, I would reward myself with a holiday. If I did it for six months, I reward myself with another marathon. I didn't know COVID was coming around the corner. Did the three months, went on holiday, did the six months, was off to Tokyo to run my 76th marathon at the time. And then COVID happened and they canceled it. Undeterred, I ended up in, on the same date in Fort Worth in Texas, running the Cowtown Marathon and pacing it, um, which was a nice way of coming back into things and, and, and enjoying running again. Now, the drama triangle that I mentioned, if you, if you imagine an inverted triangle where... where something happens and the first thing someone does is turn into a persecutor. So bad you, I blame you. I'm not blaming you, Emily, Emily, but you're here. So I'm blaming you, right? Then within that, 
I quickly shift to poor you. I turn to rescue it because I feel bad for you because I blamed you. Very quickly after that, I start to shame myself and think, no, no, no. I go into victim mode. It's poor me, self-pity. I blamed you. I then felt bad for you, which automatically meant I should feel bad for me, which then led to my expectations turning into disappointment, turning into resentment, and resenting myself. All because of things that were outside my control. Mm-hmm. So to pierce through all that, you just had to get to a point where you shift your perspective from, rather than looking at bad you and rescuing you, and not no, go straight to. If I haven't done anything wrong, if I don't believe I've done anything wrong, then it's not my fault. There's two options left: either it's the other person's fault, or just one of those things where people both come from different perspectives, and one should try shift somebody else's perspective. And an example of that I read recently is um, Dan Brown's book, Origin. Now, I'll read an extract from that, and for those who haven't read it, I hope they can follow. Um, the main actor here is you know, uh, Robert Langdon, who's, who's, who's who Tom Hanks plays in the movies, the Dan Brown movies, of was it Angels and Demons and, and Da Vinci Code. I think The Lost Symbol as well, I think. Um, so it goes by Langdon uses heel to scratch some lines on the gravel path between them. True or false, he asked. Puzzled, Amber eyed his scratchings. A simple Roman numeral equation. I plus XI equals X. 1 plus 11 is 10. She then asks, 1 plus 11 is 10? False. She said immediately. And Langdon asks her and says, and can you see any way this could be true? Amber shook her head. No, your statement is definitely false. Langdon then gently reached out and took her hand, guiding her around where he had been standing. Now when Amber glanced down, she saw the markings from Langdon's, from Langdon's vantage point, from his point perspective. The equation was upside down. And it said X plus IX. So X equals IX plus one. 10 equals nine plus one. Star, she glanced at him. 10 equals nine plus one. Langdon then said with a smile, I'm also smiling now because I'm saying it. Sometimes all you have to do is shift your perspective to see someone else's truth. Now, I apply that with everything now. Um, in any situation, because I find that most people arrive at a situation logically. And the key is, if you try and attack the foundation of that logic, that person is always going to try. It's going to be defensive because their perspective in their mind is built on a sound foundation. So what you have to do is manage it. And how do you manage it? Now, believe it or not, that's where maths comes in. Um, I recently watched a a film, a a series, and somebody was talking about maths. And this lady lady said, maths is actually a shortcut to almost everything. The fact, and you're looking at me puzzled, think about it. Rather than counting 
10 fingers every single time, you go four plus six. It's a shortcut, right? Rather than counting it every single time manually, it's a shortcut. So I then apply this now to people. How can I apply the same logic to, to managing people and managing expectations and shifting their perspectives? Quite simply, all the logic I've learned in my maths career and part of my legal career, you invert it and go to illogic. You try and think their starting point, your starting point is north and there's a south. How on earth are you going to meet? I'm going to invert my starting point from north to south. Let me start from where they are. And let me see how much of what they say and their foundation I agree with. Mm. And then deviate from there. And you almost, most of the time, people have good intentions. And the deviation comes down to miscommunication or lack of communication or a misunderstanding along the way. And that's where that's come from. And running has helped a lot with that because imagine we're both runners, we're both patients, right? Imagine when you're running, you see somebody's um, uh, numbers coming off from the back or something's about to happen or something's coming off and you tap them on the shoulder or say, excuse me. Now, I'm going to be careful how I say this, but a runner in control of their emotions will turn around and say, hi, how can I help you? And most runners are not because we're we're all in the moment. Nine mm-hmm. times out of ten, they think you're tapping them to move out of the way. And most runners tend to not like to be asked to move out of the way, notwithstanding where they are on the course, in the right place, okay. in the right corral. When you really wanted to pay the attention to something that's becoming unsafe for them or something that might go wrong, their number might fall off, it'll ruin their race, the chip comes off, etc. Now, I've learned anybody tries to communicate me why I run to not come to any conclusions because nine times out of ten they're going to ask me for something that's actually to my benefit even if it's moving out of the way mm-hmm. because I had to shift that perspective because I've observed it happen with other people I've observed a runner ask a runner you know tap them that runner being very unhappy when all that runner was trying to show them was that their number was falling off and then you then you watch the heart the apology happening to which I mean, just start laughing and everyone laughs on. Because I think at the end of the day, and I'll, and I'll conclude this part with this, uh, you, you'll like this one. It's based on chemistry. I think you've heard from me before. Um, I think we're all collective people, right? We're all different people. We all come from different backgrounds, have different ways of thinking. So if you think of it in chemistry, you have protons, electrons, which are opposites, but they attract. And you have neutrons, which are neutral and hold everything together. You have those three. And lurking around that force field is always a moron. And that moron's always trying to penetrate that force field, not knowing if it's attracted to a neutron, a proton, an electron, and just hanging around. But all then you have to do is the protons and neutrons and, and electrons come together and not let the moron in. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. Um, that is that is simply how I would describe how to you know deal with most people. Take care of your neutrons and protons and electrons, and the morons will take care of themselves. Exactly. Or if I'm a proton, I look for electrons. To, I'm attracted to an electron. 
or even a neutron. Mm-hmm. But you keep the morons out. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Akram, for sharing your story. I have four questions to wrap up our end of podcast questions, but you've given us a lot to think about regarding making sure people feel belong and suiting our perspectives so we can understand where people are coming from. But you've already mentioned this one book, but what is your best or most recent book that you have read? Talking to people about Malcolm Gladwell. I love Malcolm Gladwell books. So well written. Who or what is illuminating or inspiring you right now? My mother. She does so much for, does not seek recognition, does it completely out of love, um, and she doesn't get told it enough. That's wonderful. What is an organization you'd like to illuminate right now? No organization. Just, um, I, I I think, I think illuminate can be taken in the wrong way. I don't seek to illuminate anybody. I just seek to tell my story and see if they get illuminated by it. (laughs) <laughs> That's a good use of the word. And what is the message that you want to send to the world? Um, a message that I believe has been attributed to Hugh Laurie. But um, I'll read it out anyway. Um, I found it online. And he said, it's a terrible thing, I think, in life to wait until you're ready. I have this feeling now that actually no one's ever ready to do anything. There's almost no such thing as ready. There's only now. And you may as well do it now. Generally speaking, now is a good time as anything. Now is such a good time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time today and now and sharing your story. And I can't wait to get this episode out to our listeners. Thank you for having me. Neurons, electrons, protons, morons. <laughs> Shift your perspective, my friends, and stay resilient. I hope that hearing Akram's story has motivated you, inspired you. Thank you for allowing us to illuminate these stories. And we hope you have the very best New Year's. We'll see you next time. Thank you.